Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for Alleist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at alleist.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Every 10 years, a big scientific agency called NOAA compiles climate data from the past three decades to figure out how we're doing. California? Well, find out why the news is not great. Plus, it used to be the most color you'd see in a superhero movie was on the costumes and capes. Now, it's in the casts. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up, top Hollywood talent agency ICM is facing backlash over what some are calling a toxic work environment. We'll get into that, plus an overview of some summer movies. That's just ahead. But first, yeah, it is getting warm out there. If you're wondering just how hot it's going to be this summer, well, we're not forecasters, but we do have some insight to share. Every 10 years, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, averages climate data from the past three decades to get an idea of where the country is weather-wise. And the latest figures show that California is already getting warmer and drier. For more, we're joined by Michael Pilecki. He's a climatologist for NOAA and the U.S. Climate Normals Project Manager. Michael, welcome to Take Two. Welcome. Thanks. Now, the group of data that uh, you use are called the U.S. Climate Normals. Can you explain what kind of information is calculated and how it's gathered? Well, the original observations are gathered largely by the National Weather Service at their Cooperative Observer Network and their automated uh, surface observing stations. We also gather data from several other uh, agencies and groups. And we take this data, we quality control it, and then we uh, do several other steps beyond just taking a simple average. We, we uh, fill in missing gaps. We, we homogenize the data for changes that are due to movements of the stations. And we also um, uh, take into account other factors um, to lead to a more complete data set and a better uh, image of what's been going on for the last 30 years. So getting as full of a picture as possible. Yes, that's exactly true. Yeah. So why does NOAA then track the U.S. climate normals? And and what does the report actually tell us about our data to experience of our climate in terms of weather? Well, that's uh, the normals are actually what's used by your broadcast meteorologist to tell you if you, your day is above or below normal in temperature or last month was wetter or drier than it should have been. And so that gives you a context for today's climate. And it also gives you a bunch of additional information for people making decisions in various economic sectors. Okay, so getting then to the latest numbers, uh, what major changes were observed over the past 10 years across the country? Let's start with uh, just straight temperatures. Well, comparing uh, temperature uh, from the 1981 to 2010 period to the current new normals, 1991 to 2020, it's warmer across most of the 
uh, lower 48 states. Uh, essentially, um, only the north central states of Dakotas and and Montana and Minnesota have a little bit of of uh, uh, pushback against this. They're a little cooler than they were in the last cycle, but almost uh, the entirety of the West, uh, the Southern U.S. and the East Coast are warmer. All of Alaska is warmer. And so we definitely have a very strong warming signal of anywhere from a quarter degree to a whole degree Fahrenheit uh, across the nation. Okay, so a whole degree Fahrenheit across the nation generally. What about uh, precipitation? Well, precipitation's a, a bit more interesting pattern in that the Rocky Mountains are a great divider between a drier west and a, a wetter east. Uh, uh, areas in the, especially in the Midwest and the Southeast are wetter. Areas in the Southwest are drier, okay. uh, including Southern California. Um, what about climate trends for the state of California as a whole? How are we doing here in California? That's where we're based. Well, in California, um, you're largely in an area of uh, warming and drying conditions. And, and that uh, uh, is true not only of uh, the current normals period, but of the last uh, normals period. So, so there's a trend uh, that the normals are reflecting. Uh, normals are not usually used to, to gauge climate change exactly, but they certainly are impacted by climate change and they show the effects of climate change on our, our day-to-day climate that we experience now. So fair to say that California is drier and warmer and, and <laughs> than, it, than it was before or that it was in the past few decades. Uh, that's definitely uh, true, especially in the uh, from the central to the southern part of the state. Um, uh, that's especially noticeable. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, LAX, for instance, um, uh, you're drier by at least a half an inch of precipitation um, every year, and and the temperatures average is warmer by one degree Fahrenheit um, for the annual temperature. Well, that's uh, kind of a bummer. <laughs> I mean, it's just it just it's not uh, nice to 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 know that information. I guess we've all known. I guess living here, it feels that way. It's kind of felt that way for a while. Um, how, so how do you continue then to track climate? in between reports. I mean, are you always looking at this kind of data all the time? Uh, yes. The uh, National Centers for Environmental Information, where I am in, in, in at the Asheville site of that uh, body, is uh, monitoring climate on a month-to-month basis. In mm-hmm. fact, we produce a, a, uh, a U.S. Uh, report once a month and a global report once a month to uh, put the current uh, conditions in context of uh, point out extremes. We also track the billion dollar disasters that occur in U.S. that are affected by weather and climate. One more thing, Michael, really quick. Uh, you said, mentioned how North Dakota up there, they're, they're actually not getting warmer and drier. What, what do you think accounts for that? Is it just because they're up there? Well, it's <laughs> it probably is due to uh, the fact that climate change is driving not only just overall patterns of warming and wetting of the world, but also the circulation of atmosphere uh, of the atmosphere. And so you get more cold air events coming in there and you're going to end up uh, with cooler climate. That's uh, Michael Pilecki, climatologist for NOAA and the U.S. Climate Normals Project Manager. Michael, thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right, we're going to stay with the new U.S. climate normals, but we're going to switch uh, from NOAA, a big NOAA, to another NOAA. Noah Diffenbaugh teaches Earth Systems Science and is a senior fellow at Stanford University. He also joins us now for a look at how these new climate normals will start to impact Southern California. Noah, welcome back. Thanks so much. All right, so what do uh, data sets like the climate normals teach us about climate change? Well, um, you know, they're, they're really one of a number of indicators that uh, climate change is occurring um, and that really the baseline is shifting. Um, you know, where you know, global warming is just like it sounds, you know, the global mean annual temperature is going up. It varies from year to year and decade to decade, but it is uh, clearly marching upward. We've had more than one degree Celsius of global warming so far, and that's reflected in a, uh, you know, warming around the world that varies, uh, you know, from region to region and from and from place to place. And these, uh, what we see in these maps of the 
you know, that, that that those different uh, thirty-year periods uh, of, of the climate normals is uh, a reflection of that shifting baseline, uh, and it also uh, you know is one of many um, features of the of of that climate change, and in particular, you know, it goes along with the the uh, intensification of of extreme events that we're. Uh, seeing not only around the world, but here in California. So when we project to the future, I, I mean, we're relying on this information from the past to project to the future. Is, it, is, is, is that how it works and is that how reliable it is? Well, when we uh, try to understand uh, the characteristics of climate change and uh, the processes of climate change and how uh, climate may change in the future. We really rely on uh, these uh, historical observations from uh, the big NOAA, from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, both for understanding climate change here in California and and throughout the U.S. and around the world. So this is uh, one of the you know, these kinds of long-term observations, long-term instrumental data sets are one of the pillars of uh, understanding climate change and, and projecting climate change in the future. And of course, we combine these historical observations with um, a number of other data sets, including uh, climate models, which allow us to understand the processes mm -hmm. that, are, that are shaping the climate change that's already happened and that are likely to shape the response to future global warming. No, what are we seeing now that maybe we didn't anticipate decades ago because we just didn't have the information yet? So I started my PhD studies uh, right in the Y2K era, um, uh, September of 2000. And at that point, uh, you know, climate was, you know, a lot of ways kind of thought of as these, this long-term mean. Um, and there really wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of research on, uh, for example, extreme events that that research was just beginning. And there really was a barrier um, with understanding uh, individual extreme events that you know, that are you know that were unfolding, uh, you know, day after day and year after year, and you know that was that, that's really changed in the last um, decade, in particular. Uh, but starting with the with the European heat wave in two thousand three, so it was a real seminal study, uh, taking the leap to try to understand how the global warming that had already happened had influenced that that really severe heat wave in 2003 in Europe. And since that, that was really a watershed moment. And now we have just hundreds and hundreds of studies uh, along those lines. And, and that's, you know, really built the evidence that global warming is already uh, impacting people and ecosystems through extreme events like uh, the, you know, the, the yeah. severity of, of heat waves, the, the severity of intense precipitation, uh, storm surge flooding, uh, the intensity of droughts uh, when, when low precipitation occurs, uh, the, the frequency of low snow years, the uh, frequency of occurrence of extreme wildfire weather, right? These are all yeah. areas where for, for California, we now have evidence that, that global warming is already putting a thumb on the scales and, and increasing the odds that we experience these high impact events. So from the date that you mentioned, the date you got that, you got this started September, 2003, um, that was 2003, right? Or 2001. You said 2001, right? So I started my PhD in, in 2000. Oh, 2000. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. But that, I mean, that's still just 21 years. That's a snap of the fingers, right? I mean, to, to, none of this was really in anyone's mind. And then over 21 years, all of this gets just squished into this tiny space of time. I mean, that's got to be a, a climate slap in the face. Yeah, I think a, a couple of things have happened and there are, there, there's research on this, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, kind of retrospective research trying to figure yeah. out, um, you know, where, where, you know, scientists like myself included and a number of other scientists are going back and, and trying to evaluate what we published previously yeah. and how did we do, right? So there were, you can go back and find papers even from the, from the 1980s, um, as well as the 90s and 2000s, and you know onward, projecting forward into the future. So, so you know, for one thing, we've now it's now been long enough since those original papers that we can go back and ask, okay, in this this paper from 1988 that projected global temperature going forward, well, now it's 2020. Like, what 
how did that paper do in those intervening 30 plus years? Um, I've done, you know, similar with, uh, you know, the extreme event uh, papers that, that my research group has published where I've gone back and said, okay, let's, let's treat this like a prediction. Uh, you know, we, we went on record in the peer reviewed literature saying, you know, here's how we think, you know, here, here's how the data show that extreme events are, are changing yeah. what happened in the intervening period. Right. Um, and so, so part of it is that we've just had more time, okay. uh, more climate change has happened. The observational records are longer, right? We've had more, um, you know, more observations. And, and also I think, you know, the scientific community has really responded to what has been occurring in the real world, right? We, yeah. you know, it's undeniable that, um, well, that's the key word, right? No, I mean, it's it's all this information that uh, is at the very least tough to dispute, right? But people do dispute it. Uh, we're talking to a Stanford professor, Noah Diffenbaugh, about the impact of the latest U.S. climate normals. Um, California, uh, Noah, um, what does that potentially mean, warmer, drier California? What does that mean for those who depend on the land? I mean, should farmers worry about what and how crops can grow in this uh, in the new climate normals? Well, certainly we're seeing that long-term warming throughout California and, uh, you know, that, that, you know, some of the effects of that warming are, you know, more frequent, uh, and intense heat waves, um, you know, larger fraction of precipitation falling as rain rather than snow, earlier melting of the snowpack that does fall. And I'll, I'll just note that that's exactly what we're seeing. You know, those are the conditions we're experiencing right now, um, with this, this widespread drought and really rapid melting of, of snowpack this spring. Um, and you know, the intensification of, of drought conditions when low precipitation happens, the associated increase in wildfire risk um, as a result of that warming and, uh, and um, uh, the effects of warming on vegetation. Um, you know, I, I also with precipitation, you know, we see when we look at these long records of, 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 uh, you know, precipitation observations, as well as the atmospheric circulation. What we see is that the, you know, California is now in a climate where the, you know, the conditions that, that produce, you know, hot, dry periods are more likely, but the, the, the conditions that produce wet periods, Mm -hmm. uh, are no less likely. And what that Mm -hmm. means is we're in a climate where we can expect these, these protracted warm, dry periods and including all of those effects on the snow hydrology that I mentioned, but we still, you know, those periods we can still expect to be punctuated by wet conditions. And in particular, uh, you know, intensity of precipitation we know is, is, is rising. And that, um, that because of that effect on the snow hydrology, we're now much more likely to get, uh, these kinds of, um, extreme runoff events when heavy precipitation happens. We saw that in the Oroville crisis and, and, you know, researchers at UCLA, for instance, have shown that global warming has, substantially increased uh, the odds of that runoff yeah, during that. a storm event yeah. like what caused the Oroville crisis. So global warming contributed enough to really kind of cause the threshold to, to, to create a crisis out of that out of that precipitation event because so, of the effect so of Noah, warming. And the data is there then for an adjustment possibly for all of us that live here. To well, at least have that in mind. Climate yeah. change now. I mean, I think that's, yeah, we, and, and, and that, that, that's, you know, you asked about how, you know, compared to 20 or 30 yeah. years ago, what we know, we know that, that we're living in a, in a, in a different climate than the one in which our, our, uh, you know, all of these, all of our water systems and, and disaster management systems were, were designed and built. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, w- w- you know, California has certainly been a leader in responding and, and we're still experiencing, uh, impacts from, from climate change. So, you know, really to become resilient, we need to, uh, you know, it's clear we need to not just catch up with what's already happened, but, you know, jump ahead to be prepared for what's coming in the future. Now, the U.S. has rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, California aims to reduce carbon emissions, some very uh, aggressive and ambitious goals that the state has, along with the Biden administration as well. But what would it mean for climate change if, uh, Noah, we were able to reach those goals? I mean, will limiting global warming to, say, under two degrees stop all of this change? Well, so limiting global warming to two degrees will, you know, have a couple of effects. One is that it will, uh, you know, we'll get less intensification of these conditions than if we don't limit global warming to, to two degrees. So we'll get less at two degrees than we would at three degrees. 
But secondly, we'll get more at two degrees than we've had at one degree, right? And so when we look at these different kinds of extreme events that I've been discussing, you know, we've gone through and asked very carefully the question you're asking, you know, how does two degrees compare to three or four degrees? And how does two degrees compare to the present? And, and really both are true. Achieving that Paris target, achieving the, you know, the Biden administration goal of, of net zero by um, emissions by 2050, achieving the California policy goals, uh, that will reduce the intensification of climate extremes in California. And it will also leave us with a more extreme climate than we have now. We just need to listen to the data, right? <laughs> That's, that seems like a simple thing, but uh, it, it, it's been difficult, I think, for, for some. I think part of the challenge is really what we see in those, in those climate normals, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we really see when we look at those maps of the, of the, of the particularly the temperature normals, just that marching, that redder and redder and redder map moving forward, that's the shifting baseline. And that makes, uh, you know, th- that does make responding to climate change difficult because we're always playing catch up, right? We're always, uh, we're, we're, we're just, you know, sort of a natural, uh, you know, we're not a stationary climate and, and it's not trivial to, to respond to that uh, because um, we're kind of con- constantly, even if we respond to the last extreme event, we're in a climate where, where uh, unprecedented events are already more likely. And so it, it, it's actually not trivial to figure out how to, um, how to leapfrog ahead, particularly with, with adaptation. Uh, I'll note that California has been a leader. We have, um, you know, for example, the, the Climate Safe Infrastructure Working Group that I was a part of, where we were really mandated legislatively to, to look at how California's infrastructure design uh, investment and, and management can, can try to make that leap. Um, but, you know, it's a challenge for each of us individually on a, on a, yeah. you know, as we go about our lives on a day-to-day basis, yep, it's hard sure to do is. at the state level. Noah Diffenbaugh teaches earth system science and is a senior fellow at Stanford University. Noah, thank you very much uh, for the time. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. For much of the last year, Governor Gavin Newsom has been encouraging California schools to extend their school years and add instructional days to their calendars to make up for lost classroom time during the pandemic. Now, to that end, state lawmakers recently approved more than $6 billion in reopening aid and gave schools the option to spend it on longer school days or years. Here's Gavin Newsom at a press conference last month. We no longer need to be tied to an agrarian calendar. Use this money to extend learning opportunities, extend the school day, extend the school year, reimagine it for the kids, for your children, for our future. But in the L.A. Unified School District, the governor's idea has been a bit of a tough sell. And this week, the school board decided to approve a normal calendar without an extension. KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes has been following this story. Kyle, before we get into what uh, LAUSD's board decided, is there any evidence that a longer school year helps? 
Yeah, there is evidence that a longer school year helps, and it helps especially for students who are at the most risk of failing. That's according to uh, research um, that that sort of distilled, you know, the findings that we've had in research studies over the years. And what they found is that for for the average student, it at least doesn't hurt, but it, it is especially beneficial for students who are what the researchers say are at most uh, risk of failing. So low socioeconomic students, for students of color, uh, for students who have struggled in the past in school. Um, and you just think about the students who don't have stable internet at home, you don't, uh, who are uh, potentially in a chaotic home situation. Um, that research, plus the, you know, the thought that those are the students who are probably most likely to have fallen behind while distance learning was, was in effect. Um, ma- providing makeup time for that is what state lawmakers and the governor, the governor have, have proposed doing, among other remedies, but, but extended learning time has gotten a lot of public billing from, from the governor, as you hear from that press conference, as a way to, to combat a, a potential backslide in, in academics throughout the crisis. Now, there seemed to be a, a division, Kyle, within LAUSD about what to do. Uh, what groups, though, were generally in favor of adding more days to the calendar? And, and why do they feel so strongly about it? Well, I mean, you have to start with the district's leadership that that I think is in tune with that research. They've cited the fact that there is a research base to uh, extend the school year as a justification for uh, looking at a longer time in school. Superintendent Austin Butner was very much in favor of this. And around the same time that that clip came out from from Governor Newsom proposed extending the school year. Um, and and even as uh, the school board voted this week, said um, that there really just is no substitute uh, in, in his words, for for longer days or for a longer school year, in terms of providing extra time in classrooms as a way to make up for for the pandemic, so so that's one of the strongest constituencies that that we've heard from was is is the school district leadership itself. There were also parents at at this week's school board meeting uh, of students with disabilities. Um, you know the the services for special education students uh, have been. Uh, I, I think there's there have been mixed experiences by parents. Uh, whose whose students are in that position um, that some have been able to access their services in person, some have not, and and for those who who have not been able to access their services in person, um, an extended school year, um, in addition to what you already get it as as a special education student, I think had some had some uh, upside for them. So okay, remind us, Kyle, what the plan was to extend the school year and why ultimately did the district decide not to go through with it. So the plan was to initially what Butner proposed was add 10 days to the school year um, in the upcoming school year. So 10 days taken away from from the upcoming summer break and added on to the beginning of next school year. And then 10 more days added on uh, to, to the uh, second semester from winter break. Um, this was met with a sort of tepid response from from parents um, in uh, parent surveys showed that a plurality, in fact, preferred no change changes to the school yeah. calendar. I think a lot of folks said felt that their students were just burned out. Um, so the district proposed a compromise uh, of adding just three extra classroom days on the on the tops of each semester to, to try and add a little bit ex- extra learning time and then add uh, four more days of teacher professional development. Um, but what ultimately happened at the end was that the, the, uh, the, the district, after putting out this compromise plan, also released survey figures from the teachers' union and the principals union and both United Teachers Los Angeles and Associated Administrators of Los Angeles, even more of them than the parents, they were most staunchly opposed uh, to the idea of extending the school year. And and because it would have triggered negotiations with those unions, because we're so late in the the process, we're already several months past when uh, a calendar is normally approved for LAUSD um, and the the negotiations would have likely been contentious given that that opposition. I I think the district sort of had to, to retreat away from the idea of doing it, at least for this year. Yeah, Kyle, I might know one or 10 or 30 parents who are quite happy not to extend the school year. I think they want a break to regroup. Uh, but, you know, that's just uh, my <laughs> my network of LAUSD parents. Uh, Kyle, any sense of whether other school districts in the region will, will add go ahead, will actually go ahead and extend the school year? 
It's it's not clear whether other school districts. I mean, I don't have a great like region wide uh, sense of of what this this looks like. Um, and part of the the issue here is that the the funding that the the state is giving out, and I, I you know I, I do think it's fair to say that that the, the governor has been particularly interested in extending the school year. He even was was proposing that we should have extended the current school year by ending summer break uh, back in 2020 early because that was the where we were at. at in the in the beginning stages of the pandemic, um, but at the same time, the, there are other ways that this money can be used. There's other potential uses for the aid funding uh, that that state lawmakers have approved. This is six point six billion dollars uh, for uh, f- for um, pandemic relief aid for for K twelve education across the state, um, and that it can be used for. Uh, it could be also used to uh, lengthen the school day within the the confines of, of the normal calendar. Um, and so like there are a lot of different ways that the money could be used. So even though the, the governor has given top billing to the idea of extending the school year, other school districts uh, are considering a lot of different ways of how to spend this money. Um, and at this point, it's not yet clear how, how things are going to, how they're going to spend this massive windfall mm-hmm. of not only state aid, but federal dollars that are coming in from, from the, uh, the latest federal coronavirus relief package as well that are are aimed at trying to bring things back to normal as vaccines go in arms and and uh, and uh, we prepare for the fall semester. Yeah, I was wondering how uh, LAUSD would use money. I know you know the state lawmakers have approved uh, funding that could be used for longer school years, but I was wondering how LAUSD might use some of that money. So no sense yet on on what where that money's going to go. Well, some of the money could go to uh, to extending the school year at individual schools. Oh, the school okay. district um, has has talked about uh, ex- about get, creating a sort of a need based funding formula to distribute some of this money to schools who are interested in extending their school years uh, on their own and, and just not instituting any district wide changes. The money could also be instrumental a if they want to extend next school year, which is uh, a proposal that most school board members. Uh, on Tuesday uh, said that they were interested in doing, um, and, and most of the school boards of the, or excuse me, of the district's administration is interested in pursuing a calendar year extension in 2022-23. So that's one possible use for this money. But, um, you know, I, I think that there's that there's a lot of ways that the money could be spent in addition to that co- going forward. You know, Kyle, since we're talking about the coming school year, I mean, any sense of what that's going to look like? Or I think, are, are people just, just want to take a break right now and not think about next, <laughs> next school year? Uh, do we have to talk about this now? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, the 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 um, what Superintendent Austin Butner, who is of course leaving the school district yeah, at the end of thing. June, yeah. uh, has said that that uh, he expects the school district to return to full time in person five day a week instruction mm. uh, coming up in the fall. That's what the governor has called for. Um, it, it's not clear what the, the the public health situation is going to look like in September. So I think uh, you know we've heard from particularly from the teachers union, not to make to rush to any judgments about what that's going to look like, especially in Los Angeles. But um, at, as far as, as you know, I just saw figures that came out from the state recently that say that 86 percent of the of the state school districts are either uh, reopened uh, fully in terms of, you know, like five days of in-person instruction or at least for hybrid instruction at this point. So I think we're, we're moving closer to a point where in-person instruction, at least partially, is going to be the norm. It's not hard to imagine things moving toward a five-day, full-day uh, calendar come the fall. One more thing really quick, Kyle. I know nerves are frayed right now, um, but and, and the school year won't be longer, at least in the next school year. What about uh, in the future? I mean, any chance this idea creeps back? I, I I think especially because that that money has a long tail. There's there's definitely a chance that this that this creeps back. Um, I, I you know on on the other hand, this was this was derailed by um, you know not only teacher opposition uh, and 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 principal opposition, uh, but there was a very vocal plurality. I, I, you know you could say maybe a minority, a plurality of parents in LAUSD who are not interested in changing the calendar. Changing the calendar has been tried in before. 
four in the district. There was, you know, a couple of years ago, it was whether we should start before Labor Day. And, and you can divide any room, uh, whether you on, on the question of whether, you know, it's too hot in certain parts of L.A. Unified to hold school uh, in the month of August. Um, you know, so so I mean, there is interest in in revisiting the idea of a longer school year. Jackie Goldberg, for one, uh, said uh, that she's interested in a 200 day school year, which would be a, a full four weeks longer than it currently is. Um, but uh, changing the calendar is no easy feat, uh, even in non-pandemic times. That's KPCC's Kyle Stokes. Kyle, thanks a lot. You're welcome. More Take Two coming right up. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Now, even before the pandemic, there was evidence that hunger was a problem for some of the military. There was a 2019 survey by the Military Family Advisory Network that found one in six families in Virginia struggled to get enough to eat. While another Pentagon study found that a third of students in its schools were eligible for free or reduced-priced meals. And now, during the pandemic, because some military spouses lost their jobs or had their hours cut, more pressure has been put on household budgets, requiring more families to rely on food banks and emergency aid to get by. From San Antonio, Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project, a collaboration of public radio stations, including KPCC. On a blustery spring day at Fort Sam Houston, a line of cars idle with their trunks open, waiting as volunteers unload boxes of food from a semi-park nearby. Go up this trunk. You want to go head in? Some of the drivers are soldiers who have just gotten off work. Others are military spouses or relatives. So we're moving the cars now. As they roll forward to collect their rations, most barely crack their windows. Volunteers say that's common because people don't want to be seen. One of the volunteers handing out food is Army Staff Sergeant Rebecca Hummer, who's still recovering from tough times brought on by the pandemic. Though she makes just over $60,000 a year, including allowances for housing and food, Hummer still felt the effects when her husband Dale lost his job as a security guard in November. He was looking to get hired, but because of the pandemic, there were layoffs, so he wasn't able to find work immediately, and we did face some financial stress. On top of that, the couple had two huge unexpected expenses. Their house flooded after a heavy rain, and their dog was diagnosed with cancer. It was hard. My husband and I, we save, um, but we had to kind of cut back on, on what we normally get as far as choosing either boxed items at the grocery store, um, a lot less fresh produce, things that were maybe less nutritious. So it, it was kind of a challenge as far as eating to get by, but that's, that's what we did. And I'm not proud to say, but I skipped meals. According to a survey from the military support organization Blue Star Families, more than 40 percent of working military spouses reported losing their jobs during the height of the pandemic. Others had to reduce their work hours, usually to take care of kids who were home and in virtual school. Many are still not back to work full time. We saw a lot more, I think, job losses amongst spouses of military service members um, because, you know, child care became an issue. Christine Abraham is the director of culinary wellness at the Fort Sam Houston Resiliency Center. She says lower enlisted families have been hit especially hard by spouse unemployment. For the enlisted service member, they um, to keep them from being food insecure, that second income is what made the big difference. It's difficult to gauge just how many service members are food insecure. Josh Protas is the vice president for public policy with Mazone, a Jewish response to hunger. He says most food banks don't ask questions about military status. Those agencies really try to protect the anonymity and the dignity of those that they're serving. 
Still, he says many of those same agencies anecdotally report that more military families are using their services because of COVID-19. And Census Bureau surveys have shown increased rates of spousal unemployment and economic hardship. I'm not sure that we have an exact statistic about food insecurity, but we know that it's been increasing. The Defense Department is aware of figures from outside groups which show food insecurity increased during the pandemic, but it doesn't have reliable numbers of its own. It adds that it's planning on collecting data specific to food insecurity through surveys of active duty spouses. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. Used to be the most color you'd see in a superhero movie was on the costumes and the capes. Now it's in the casts. Coming up are the first Asian and the first Muslim superhero movie characters in big blockbuster films. And with Captain America leading the way now, the first black Superman is on its way as well. Hear all about it when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Abby Martinez. When it comes to Hollywood, change tends to come slowly. And when it comes to harassment, maybe not at all. Plus, superheroes of color. Yeah, that didn't used to be a thing way back in the day. It used to be that they'd be on the costumes, maybe on the capes. But now, yeah, the cast. For more on this and more, let's go on the lot. <laughs> Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Rebecca Keegan is here, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. All right, Rebecca, International Creative Management, ICM, founded in 1975, has since become one of the Hollywood's uh, top talent agencies. Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson, Regina King, Shonda Rhimes. Now, while ICM claims that since 2017, half their agents promoted to partner are women and that over half of their departments are run by women. Rebecca, what's the other part of this story? Well, this is a story published in the L.A. Times today that uh, says they spoke to more than 30 former and current ICM employees who described a hostile work environment for women and people of color there. They talked about harassment, bullying, inappropriate conduct. And the story says that since 2017, nearly a dozen women have reported allegations of mistreatment by male agents there. Allegations. What allegations are made against ICM? Well, some of them are really egregious, like an agent exposing himself to a female film finance executive. Some of them are unwanted advances. There's an unwanted advance described uh, between an agent and a female client. Um, and some of it is yelling at employees, degrading language, throwing things at subordinates. I, I have to say, while ICM is the agency that is covered in this story, I suspect that people who work at agencies all around town will see some things in the story that feel familiar to them. Unfortunately, this isn't very unusual uh, in what has historically been acceptable behavior at agencies. Yeah, degrading language, throwing things at subordinates. I mean, again, I, I've said this a million times, Rebecca, you know, I, Swimming with Sharks, that that weird movie that apparently is just exactly what happens inside a Hollywood, uh, Hollywood establishment. All right, so who are the people being accused at ICM? 
Well, the CEO of the company, Chris Silberman, is accused of setting a tone of sort of permissiveness in the company culture. There's also a partner, Eric Warren, who resigned after accusations of unwanted advances, which he apologized for. Another partner, Steve Alexander, was alleged to have exposed himself. He's denied that. Um, There are sort of allegations all through the company of different crude and derogatory comments made by male agents and uh, male leaders at the company. Rebecca, what happened when uh, ICM wanted to film uh, an agent trainee program and it was during Black History Month? That was 2019. What happened uh, then? Well, this... um, the company was wanting to, I guess, portray itself as inclusive, but there were so few people of color in the agent trainee program that black assistants were asked to pose as agent trainees. Um, they pushed back at that. Ultimately, the human resources department apologized and that footage wasn't used in the final video. So basically black people as props. Yeah, sort of tokenizing of the few black assistants who were employed there, and there was an effort to make them appear to have more power at the company than than they ultimately had. What has ICM said over all of these things? Uh, The company issued a statement saying it, quote, does not tolerate harassment, bullying, or other inappropriate conduct. HR investigates all reports received and addresses each with appropriate disciplinary measures up to and including dismissal. You know, Rebecca, you've been covering this for a while, and I know we've we've come a ways, uh, you know, since uh, 2017, but obviously not far enough. But I mean, is is change noticeable to the point where it's getting better, or is it just pretty much all the same? I think what's happening is that there is a new expectation of transparency at companies. So a lot of the behaviors described in this LA Times story about ICM actually predate the sort of. Harvey Weinstein 2017 Me Too movement. Uh, But people are starting to talk openly about these kinds of things. Now, I think the story that my colleague at The Hollywood Reporter, Tatiana Siegel, did about Scott Rudin has also inspired some people to talk more openly about different kinds of harassment and mistreatment apart from the the sexual misconduct. Um, And I, I also think that younger employees have different expectations. They're not as willing as generations that came before them in Hollywood to kind of put up with abusive treatment from bosses. Yeah, grinning and bearing it. Uh, yeah, that doesn't quite fly anymore. Um, all right, from talent agencies to entertainment journalists, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, they're trying to reinvent themselves. Rebecca, remind us of what happened and what they're hoping will now happen. Right. I mean, this is a story we've been talking about since the LA Times story in February, which revealed there were zero black journalists out of the membership of 86 in this organization. That sparked, uh, you know, threats of boycotts from Time's Up and over 100 PR firms if the HFPA didn't show some reforms by May 6th. Well, now the HFPA has written a letter to its members asking them to approve this sweeping set of reforms. Um, They're proposing adding 20 new members with a focus on recruiting black members. Um, They would like to eliminate the residency requirement that calls for members to be based in Southern California and also open it up to members who work outside of print. And if uh, these reforms are not passed, what might happen? Uh, The board would resign. Wow. Wow. All right. So, yeah. So there's some teeth then maybe to what they're at least proposing. We're talking to Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film at The Hollywood Reporter. All right, Rebecca, look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's not Michael B. Jordan. No. Despite rumors that he uh, might be the next black Superman, Rebecca, it doesn't mean that he that uh, the next Man of Steel won't be black, will it? No, Warner Brothers and DC are committed to bringing the first black Superman to the screen. Uh, this is a movie that's being written by ta Coates, and the studio is looking for a black director to helm the project. It's produced by J.J. Abrams. Um, there are a lot of, you know, potential big directors who could be in the running for this, maybe Regina King, maybe Shaka King, who directed Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, but there's a a real priority on having a black director in the director's chair. Um, as far as the actor goes, it's possible that they could cast an unknown for this. Yeah. Uh, as you said, Michael B. Jordan said, you know, he's he's not in this film. He's just <laughs> watching from the outside. But there are a lot of young actors who are potentially in the running. Makes me wonder, though, what's Michael B. Jordan working on that he would turn down being the first black Superman? 
<laughs> well, I mean, he's he currently is is working on a, a movie directed by Denzel Washington. That's sort of a serious drama. Oh. He's in this new uh, Amazon movie without remorse. I mean, he's working steadily. Sometimes being part of these big franchises <laughs> is more than people necessarily want to sign up for. All right, the Denzel Washington. Okay, fine. Go ahead and do that. I suppose, right. um, Rebecca. It's not as if DC can wait too long though to fill the job of director and 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 Black Superman because. Marvel, its arch nemesis, also has a project in the works that uh, might be filling some of those same roles. Right. Marvel's making its its Blade movie starring Mahershala Ali, and uh, they, too, are looking to have a, a, some black creative talent behind the scenes as writers, as directors. Um, so there are a number of projects now superhero projects specifically where the industry has really gotten the word that audiences want um, more diverse stories and they're trying to populate them. And in case anyone is wondering about Ryan Coogler, he is not available. He is working on Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the second Black Panther movie. So, any, so Ryan Coogler is definitely out of the equation. But that brings us, uh, Rebecca, to Marvel's Phase 4 movie Slay that picks up right after Avengers Endgame. And they released a sizzle reel of what's to come. So what's to come? Yeah, I, the reaction to this sizzle reel in social media was a lot of people saying, okay, I now see the movie that's going to get me out to theaters um, after sitting at home for yeah. a year plus. There are 10 films. Um, the first up is Black Widow, which comes out in July. Then there's um, Shang-Chi and the Re Legend of the Ten Rings, which will be the first to have an Asian actor leading a Marvel film. That'll be followed by Eternals, directed by... Uh, Best Director winner, Chloe Zhao. Best Picture winner, Chloe Zhao, starring Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, Kumail Nanjiani. Um, and then in 2022 comes the Black Panther sequel. Um, there's just a lot in the pipeline. There's a lot. And the great thing about it, too, is that there is, I mean, for anyone that grew up in this era that I grew up in and seeing all white people doing all these superhero things, um, now it seems like Hollywood, at least in this respect, Rebecca, has gotten the message. Uh, you know, in, in Captain Marvel, uh, Brie Larson is back as Captain Marvel. It's going to be called uh, The Marvels. But in that movie, you're going to have a Pakistani-American character a Marvel Comics' first Muslim character. And, and when you think about who's running this thing, you mentioned 10 films, three directed by women, and the cast is full of diversity. I mean, that that is the whole point, right? Yeah, although, um, so we're waiting for Blue Beetle, but still waiting for a little more Latino representation, as I think you've noted. Yeah, that's my only, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see what's going on, but yeah, the, the brown folks still don't have much to, much to say, hey, that's me on the screen, but that's coming. I'm hoping that's, uh, that's coming. Yeah, particularly underrepresented when you look at how uh, Latino moviegoers tend to go to more movies than other groups. So it's surprising that Hollywood's taken a while to catch up to that. I am still, a, even though I don't like wearing capes, Rebecca, I am very available to wear a cape in any superhero movie that any Hollywood studio wants to cast me in. So <laughs> okay, if anyone's listening right now, yeah. I hope they'll follow up on that. One more thing really quick. Netflix uh, planned to release Zack Snyder's zombie thriller, Army of the Dead, exclusively in theaters before it heads to the streaming service a week later. What led to that decision, Rebecca? Well, as you may recall, a thousand years ago in 2019, Netflix released The Irishman and Marriage Story exclusively in theaters uh, before the movies came to their streaming service. At the time, Netflix's short theatrical window was off-putting to major theater chains, and they refused to screen the company's movies. This time around, a major chain, Cinemark, has booked this movie on 200 of its screens. So there's been a shift in power during the pandemic and Netflix is now able to work with at least one major theater chain. I can wear a big giant A on my chest and have a K. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior <laughs> editor of a film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. On second thought, I can't wear the cape. I just can't wear a cape. I think superheroes with capes, it's just useless. The cape doesn't do anything. Batman, okay, yeah, Batman uses his cape, but every other superhero that wears a cape it's just a big waste of time. All right, no more nerding out on capes and superheroes. Uh, if you missed any part of Take Two, just head to wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.